you could turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. That's where we're going to start today. But I want to let you know we're not going to stay in Acts 21 for very long. In fact, today we are going to be tackling our largest section of the book of Acts yet. We are going to be covering six chapters today. Somebody say, oh my. Oh my, six long chapters. Trust me, it's going to be fine. But I want to encourage you, just like I have in many other sermons, please be reading the book of Acts. It's going to enrich your experience here so much more if you've got more familiarity. We're going to cover six chapters. Obviously, we're not going to read it all. There's going to be a lot here for you to read on your own, and I certainly want to encourage you to do that. But I want to handle these six chapters all in one block because these six chapters have to do with what specifically happened to Paul once he got to Jerusalem and then what happened to him after he got shipped off to Caesarea. This will make more sense to you once we get into it. Now, if you remember last week, Paul was on his third missionary journey, and he is traveling west. He spends three years in Ephesus, and then he continues to move on. And what happens? The Lord says to him, Paul, I want you in Jerusalem. And, and Paul admits many times, he said, the Lord is telling me I got to go to Jerusalem and then I got to go on to Rome. And everywhere I stop, the Lord warns me that trials and hardships and prison is what's waiting for me. All of Paul's friends begged him, don't go to Jerusalem. They feared for his life. And they told him, you can read this in, in, in Acts chapter 21, don't go, they're going to they're gonna arrest you, they're going to kill you. But Paul would not be detoured. He is on his way to Jerusalem. He's almost there. And there is a prophet by the name of Agabus that comes down to see Paul. And, and you get this fascinating, fascinating illustration with this prophet. He takes off Paul's belt. Jewish men wore uh, like a, a, a tunic, a cloak, and this whole robe outfit. And they tied it all together with the belt. He takes Paul's belt and he binds Paul's hands and feet with that belt. And this prophet says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's a pretty powerful illustration, isn't it? If somebody came up to you and took your belt off and tied your hands up and said, this is what your future looks like, would you want to stop and go somewhere else? I would. Paul would not be detoured. Paul did go to Jerusalem. And everything that his friends feared would happen to him there happened. He was barely in Jerusalem for a week. He goes up to the temple to pray. The Bible says there's a small group of people that recognized him. That small group of people were, were able to rally up a mob. And the Bible says that people came running from all different directions. In fact, the whole city uh, was stirred. That's the Bible's way of saying there was a lot of people that took notice and they all kind of jumped in on this. The city was aroused. They came running from all directions. They got a hold of Paul right there in the temple area. They started beating him and kicking him. You know, that's exactly what you want to see when you go to the house of God for worship, right? Somebody getting a beat down. Well, that's what's happening to Paul. And I think they would have killed him right there had it not been for a Roman commander who swooped in to rescue Paul. You know how he, how he rescued him? He rescued him by arresting him. He took him to jail. He didn't know what was going on. There was a riot. Someone was about to break loose. He's like, you're coming to jail with me. He didn't know, know what he was doing. Just, you're coming with me. As you read these next six chapters, what becomes very clear is that nobody knows what to do with Paul. 
They have no idea. There's people that want him dead, but they don't know what he's guilty of, so they put him in jail. And we read very early on that there were 40 men who had taken a vow not to eat or drink until Paul was dead. They were going to break into the jail, and they were going to kill him. 40 guys made this vow. I could never make a vow like that. I was like, hey, if we don't get this done in the next hour, I'm eating. But they had made this strong vow. Not going to eat or drink until we've killed Paul. Well, the Romans, they learned of this plot, and so they snuck Paul out of the city without anybody noticing, and they took him to, to another city uh, called Caesarea. Now, I have driven from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It's about a 75-mile car ride. It's about 54 miles as the crow flies. You can drive it in a little over an hour, and that's not a very long distance by today's standards. But the, when Paul was alive... That distance was enough to shield him somewhat from these 40 men who had vowed to kill him while he was in jail. Now, once he's in Caesarea, the, they turn him over to a guy by the name of Felix. Felix was the governor, and Paul would spend the next two years of his life in jail in Caesarea. Two years he would sit in jail. Now, let me give you just a little bit of context to kind of help put some some boundaries around what's happening in the book of Acts. We are looking at right now about 25 years of time has passed since the resurrection of Jesus. 25 years since Jesus rose to life and to when Paul is in prison in Caesarea. Now that doesn't seem like a long time, but it really is a long time. 25 years. You think about what happened during those 25 years. It's been estimated that Paul and his friends, they traveled well over a thousand miles preaching the good news of Jesus. Now, I don't know this for sure, but estimates range in around a couple hundred thousand people in that 25-year span of time have become followers of Jesus. That is remarkable. Especially when you think about this is a day and age where there's no cars, there's no planes, there's no trains, there's no mail, there's no internet, there's no email, social media, instant message, direct message, there's none of that stuff. There are no satellites orbiting the earth, beaming out millions of bits of data every half second. This was all done word of mouth. Everywhere that Paul went, he preached the good news. And the Bible talks about how people responded and whole cities and regions uh, heard the good news of Jesus. This is why, even to this day, Paul is considered the greatest evangelist who ever lived. Then you come to Acts chapter 24 to Acts chapter 26, which encompasses a two-year span of time, 24 to 26. Paul had the opportunity to preach about Jesus. He boldly proclaimed the good news of Christ, talked about the resurrection. And in those two years, guess how many people became followers of Jesus? Zero. Zero. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 24. I'd like to show you some things. I, I want us to focus this morning on that two-year period of time where Paul preached boldly and no one responds in faith he's in prison felix is the governor and he's been there a few days you know they rescued him out of jerusalem so it's early in his prison or early in his jail time there was ananias and who's the high priest and others they travel to caesarea and they bring formal charges against paul and they tell felix 
that Paul is a troublemaker. They say that he is the ringleader of a Nazarene sect. That's what they call it. Nazarene sect was one way they referred to Christians, also called members of the way. Um, there are several names, as we've discovered in the book of Acts, that they called Christians. So Ananias calls it a Nazarene sect. And they brought these charges against Paul. And so Felix says, well, Paul, what do you have to say about that? And Paul's like, well, I am glad to make my defense. He's, first of all, he says, I'm not a troublemaker. Secondly, he says, these charges are absolutely false. And the third thing he says is, I am a worshiper. And then he continues his defense. Look at verse 14. Here's what he says against these charges. He says, I admit that, I'm a, that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before man. What a great statement. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. And then if you're, you keep reading that on your own at some point, he's going to talk more about his faith. But he gets down to verse 22, and, and he says, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, he adjourns the proceedings. This is what Felix says. He says, when Lysus, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. In other words, I think this is Felix saying, I have no idea what, how to rule here. I, I have no idea what to say, so I'm going to pull in some help, and when he gets here, I'll make some kind of decision. Look down a couple verses to verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. What an incredible moment. Here you have this governor, Felix. He's like, I got Paul in prison. I'm going to have a one-on-one -on -one with him. Wouldn't you love to have had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the apostle Paul? And so Paul tells him all about Jesus Christ. It says in verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Now, you guys understand that when you're first introduced to the gospel, it's not uncommon for there to be a little bit of fear with that. It's a little bit terrifying to come face to face with the truth that without Jesus Christ in my life, I am a lost person, and I am in danger of spending an eternity without the Lord that can be quite fearful. So he was afraid. And then it says that he said to Paul, that's enough for now. You may leave. Says, I've had enough. That's, I can't take any more of this. And when I find it convenient, I will send for you. You know, Felix kind of reminds me of people today who just don't want to face the truth. I mean, they're confronted with the truth, but they're like, I don't want to face that truth. They don't want the responsibility of righteousness. Have you ever known anybody like that? Here's the truth, but like, I want to go live my own life. I don't want to, I don't want to live that way. I, it's not that I don't, quote unquote, believe in a God. It's just that I don't want to, to live toward, to, according to this kind of standard. People may say it like this. I want Jesus on my own terms. I want the kind of faith that I want, but I don't want to obey all of these things. I just want what I, I want. You know, I think it stands very true that most people today don't follow Christ not because they don't quote-unquote believe. It's because they don't want to change to become like Jesus. They want to live their life. They want to, they, they want to, they want to enjoy what this world has to offer, which is a short-sighted view of what eternity has to offer. 
So two years go by, and as far as we know, Felix never surrenders his heart to Christ. There's nothing in Scripture that says this one conversation, which probably had several conversations, nothing led to a decision for Christ. Felix keeps Paul in prison. He doesn't do it because he's guilty of anything. He does it to keep peace. As a favor to the Jews, he just keeps Paul in prison. Then we read that uh, Felix's time as governor comes to an end, and he is succeeded by a guy named Festus. Now, this new governor, Festus, he travels to Jerusalem, and while he's in Jerusalem, you know all those guys that wanted Paul dead? They approach Festus, and they're like, Festus, will you please send Paul back to Jerusalem so that uh, we can bring formal charges against him? What they weren't telling Festus, and what, he would find, you know, what we would find out later in Scripture, is that they had a plan. If they could get Paul back in Jerusalem, if they could talk Festus into it, they were going to ambush the convoy, and they were going to kill Paul before they ever got to Jerusalem. Well, I'll tell you, there's some darkness here in these guys' hearts. But Festus is like, no, if you want to bring formal charges under my leadership, you can come with me to Caesarea, and you can bring those charges. And you know, it kind of makes me wonder, whatever happened to those 40 guys that vowed to not eat or drink until Paul was dead? They must be really hungry by this point. They must be starving. That's right. But Festus said, no, if you want to bring formal charges, you can come back to Caesarea and we'll do it over there. And so that's exactly what they do. Round two. These guys come back. They charge Paul. They say he's a troublemaker and all of these things. And Festus does the same thing that Felix did. Paul, would you like to say something? And Paul's like, yes, I would. Basically, he says, I'm not a troublemaker, and he tells them all about Jesus. And I'll let you read that part on your own. Then, a few days later, we read that King Herod Agrippa comes into town to pay respects to the new governor, Festus. And I said, King Herod Agrippa, and you might be thinking, wait a minute, didn't he die already? Maybe some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I've heard that name. Isn't that the one that got eaten up by worms way back in Acts chapter 12? And if you made that connection and you were thinking that, then bravo, you have got a really good memory. This is not the same Herod Agrippa. This is his son. The guy that died in Acts chapter 12 was Herod Agrippa I. This is his son, Herod Agrippa II. I don't know, when you read the New Testament, you might, you know, Herod's name is mentioned all throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts, and you might be thinking, my goodness, how old is Herod? He's all over the place. Actually, what I want to help you understand is there were four Herods in the Bible, four of them. Um, The first one was Herod the Great. He was kind of like the godfather of all the Herods. He was the king when Jesus was born. He was the king who put that terrible order in to kill all the boys under two years of age to try to get Jesus. That's Herod the Great. Well, his son, Herod Antipas, he was the one who was in leadership during Jesus' ministry as an adult. He was the one that had John the Baptist put to death. He was the king, that was King Herod, who was around when Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Then as the church moves on and many years pass by, he is replaced by his son, Herod Agrippa I, and he's the one that makes an appearance in Acts chapter 12, and the people were praising him like he was a god, and because he would not deflect that praise, but he accepted it, God struck him down. That's Herod Agrippa I. And here again, now in Acts chapter 25, we meet his son, Herod Agrippa II, and he has an audience with Paul, 
And Paul gets to tell him all about Jesus. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 25, look down to verse 18. And if you didn't catch everything I said about all the four Herods, um, I put that genealogy in the notes on the app. So you can find those there very easily if you want to reference that later. But if you look at Acts chapter 25, verse 18, Festus is having a conversation with King Agrippa. And he's telling him all about what's going on with Paul. And if you look at verse 18, this is what Festus tells Agrippa. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Interesting little detail. Don't you think that Paul told Festus exactly what he believed? Festus got the message. He goes, yeah, Paul keeps talking about this guy, Jesus, who's dead, but he says he's alive. Paul was not able to persuade Festus, and there's no record of him making a decision for Christ either. Chapter 26, Paul appears before King Agrippa and his wife, and he says this in verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. And then, you can read this part on your own, Paul goes on to talk about his faith in Jesus and the resurrection. Jump down to verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, isn't this interesting? Paul is defending himself. He's talking all about Jesus. He has King Agrippa, who's very familiar with Christianity and all the Jewish customs. And he goes, listen, I can talk to the king because he knows what I'm talking about. It's almost like a little bit of a compliment. He knows what I'm talking about. He's very familiar. He's a smart guy. And then Paul's also, at the same time, evangelizing him. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa's not dumb. He knows what Paul's doing. And if you look at the very next verse, in verse 28, Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short amount of time you can persuade me to be a Christian? I mean, mean, here Agrippa's like, Paul, I know what you're doing. You're trying to convince me to follow Jesus. And do you think you're going to be successful? I've wondered at times, if King Agrippa was not the king, and if Festus and Felix were never governors, would they have followed Jesus? Or was there too much pride and ego in the way? I mean, let's be real. A prisoner converting a king. You know what the Bible says? Pride goes before a fall. Paul replied, well, short time or long, I pray that to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. Well, what is Paul? He's a child of God, saved by the king, going to heaven. He says, I want everybody to become like me, well, except for these chains, he says. Don't want that for anybody. The king rose, and with 
him, the governor, and Bernice, all those sitting with him, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment, which is an interesting detail. After all of this, they can't find any wrongdoing, and Herod makes this assessment, and all of them do, but Herod, like, there's nothing wrong here, which is interesting. He's the fourth Herod in the Bible, and the three before him have had terrible things to say about Jesus and the Lord, and, all. and, and, and this one says something halfway positive, which we'll take it coming from such a rotten family line. We'll take a little bit of positive here. But between 24 and 26 of the book of Acts, we see that Paul had his opportunity with Felix and Drusilla. He had his opportunity with Festus. And he had his opportunity with King Agrippa and Bernice. Three shots, no takers. And the reason I want to point this out to you guys today is because sometimes when you share your faith with others, it feels the same way. I gave them my best shot. They weren't interested. Just out of curiosity, are any of you right now, you don't have to raise your hands, but are any of you engaged in a conversation with anybody about Jesus and you're feeling like it's falling on deaf ears? I'm giving it my best shot. No takers. You know, if you're feeling that way, I just want to remind you of something else that Paul said one time. He wrote a letter to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he, he talks about sharing the good news like the, in these terms. He said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they each will be rewarded according to their own labor. How many of you know that a person's journey to faith can be a long one? Not everybody responds to the first conversation. It can take a lot of time. Do you see yourself as part of a holy lineup of people who God is using to bring somebody to faith? You might be one piece of the bigger picture. There have been times that I've had to just make peace with the fact that um, I've done everything I know how to do. Somebody else now is going to have to come back and do the next step with somebody. My wife and I, we moved here from Kansas City, Missouri. As many of you know, I pastored a church there for nearly 11 years before coming to Arkansas. And uh, we had a friend um, that we met in Kansas City. She's not a Christ follower, but we shared our faith with her uh, as often as the Lord gave us opportunity to. She was one of those persons that, you know, we invited to church all the time. Have you ever been, been invite, 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 no, 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 invite, invite, no, 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 and then one day they show up, and you're like, whoa, we got that experience one time. She showed up for church. I heard many times we, we listened to her talk about the struggles that she was having, walked with her, helped her think through some real difficult situations that she was having in her life, and, uh, and, and we always told her about Jesus. But even to this day, she shows little to no interest in the Lord. And of course, moving here to Arkansas, I, you know, I don't interact. We don't interact with her very much anymore. The, our, you know, our, just because of distance, it's just kind of made it more difficult. And I've just made peace with, Lord, I did everything I knew how to do. Maybe I planted a seed and somebody else will come along and water it. But we trust that you'll make it grow. And maybe, Lord, we're at peace knowing that we were part of this holy lineup of people of trying to lead her to a relationship with the Lord. 
Like I said, sometimes people respond right away. Other times it takes multiple people. Sometimes it takes a crisis to come into somebody's life for that seed to sprout. I, I, I hate seeing that when that happens, but at the end of the day, I would much rather somebody experience a crisis here on earth than a crisis for all eternity if that's what it takes to lead them to Jesus. You know, when I consider Paul's testimony between Acts chapter 24 and Acts chapter 26 to all of these leaders, this two-year period of time, I think there are some really important lessons for us to take in and absorb and apply to our own lives as we try to tell other people about Jesus. I, I don't know about you, but when I talk about Jesus with people, I want them to take me seriously. And I was wondering, how do, how do people take us seriously? Is there anything we can do to be taken more seriously? I see six things in Paul's three conversations with these leaders that I think if we could adapt would, would help us be taken more seriously. The first one is this. I think it's so important. We're telling other people about Jesus. We have to watch our own walk with Jesus. We're going to attach a word to that. We're going to call it authenticity. Authenticity. Watch your walk. If you look at all three conversations that Paul had, there was no evidence of wrongdoing in any of it. And as you share your faith with others, one of the things I guarantee, I promise, that people you're talking to are looking at, they're wanting to know if you really believe what you're saying. They want to know, are you walking the talk? Are you, are you, are you, are you walking the walk? Are you talking the talk? They want to know if, if your faith is authentic is this guy for real is this gal for for real they're watching you know peter said this in first peter chapter 3 verse 15 he said but in your hearts revere christ that's where it all starts you've got to own your faith with jesus you've got to hold his name in high honor it has got to be so real in your life that it just kind of bleeds out of you people will see and they'll know if it's really a real faith you revere christ it's so important in your life first and when it is, people see that. Peter goes on to say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I didn't come up with this, but I love it. It's this little phrase that's easy to remember. Changed lives change lives so true watch your walk here's the second thing that i see in paul that i think we should try to emulate ourselves know what you believe know what you believe we're, we're going to attach a word called accuracy to that accuracy in each of these conversations paul taught about jesus christ and he always ended with the resurrection chapter 24 verse 21 he said it's concerning the resurrection of jesus that I am on trial before you today. It's because of Jesus rising from the dead. That's why I'm here. When Festus was telling Agrippa in chapter 24, 25, verse 19, what did Festus say? Paul keeps talking about this Jesus guy who rose from the dead. Before Agrippa in, in chapter 26, verse 23, it says that Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That's what Paul said. All of our faith, our Christian faith, 100% rides on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And when we talk to people about it, it's got to come back to that. 
It's all about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Well, I tell you, if there's one verse in the Bible that sums up the power of the resurrection and what it means for each of our lives, it's that one. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is worthless. Our faith is useless. It all comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. We've got to know what we believe. The third thing is this. I think I saw this in Paul, and I think we should take to heart it as well. Know your audience. Know who you're talking to. We're going to call this word accommodation. Make accommodations for who you're talking to about Jesus. And let me give you some examples. This is what Paul did. When he spoke to Felix, Felix had been around for a while. He was fairly aware of the way of Christians. Even Paul, he points that out. He says, Felix, I know you're well acquainted with the way. And he tailored his communication to Felix knowing that he was familiar. But yet when he's talking to Festus, Festus was a newcomer. He was the guy who said, hey, this Paul guy keeps talking about some guy named Jesus who he says is alive. He didn't know anything. And so if you look at what Paul said to, to Festus, it's a simpler version. It's a simpler message. Then when he's standing before King Agrippa, I mean, it's like all guns a-blazing. I mean, even Paul says, King Agrippa, I know you are well acquainted with all this stuff, all the Jewish customs. I know you believe the prophets. Paul's like, I'm giving you the full meal deal, and that's pretty clear as well. When you're sharing Jesus with somebody, take into, cons into consideration, who are they? How much do they already know? What do they not know? Tailor the conversation in a way, to the best of your ability, where they're in a position to hear it and, and receive it. A lot of people aren't ready for the full buffet of Jesus just yet. It takes a little time for them to absorb smaller bites. I see Paul doing that in this two-year window of time. He knew who he was talking to, and he adjusted himself. I would say this, too. I see it in Paul. I could see it in all of us. Have your story down. We're going to have this word connected to it, articulation. Have you ever taken time to write down your personal story of how I became a follower of Jesus? I mean, have you ever written it down? I mean, do you know your story? Could you tell it to somebody? I want you to know, if you look, look at the culmination of Paul's preaching and teaching, he always worked in his story of how he became a Christian and how his life has changed. He would do that because stories are interesting and stories are powerful and stories are relatable. And you, every last one of you in this room, has a story that God wants to use to touch somebody else's life for his son Jesus. True. If you were to take time to write down your story, it's going to have three parts to it. Every person who's a Christian here today. The first part of your story is, this is what I was like before I became a Christian, before I met Jesus. That's part one. Part number two is, this is how I met Jesus. And part three, this is what my life is like now that I've met Jesus. If you could write out your story with those three parts, before I met Jesus, how I met Jesus, and what my life is like now, you'll be amazed how God will put people in your path who need to hear your story. Your story is powerful. It's probably one of the most influential tools you have in evangelism. 
I've heard it said like this before, that a salvation story backed up by an authentic life is an unanswerable apologetic. Who can deny or refute your experience with Jesus Christ? It's your story. And God will use it in powerful ways. Fifth thing that I see in Paul is he spoke the truth in love, and we need to speak the truth in love. We're going to call this appreciation. If you've, um, I would say it would not have been hard for Paul to drop the hammer on any of these leaders. I mean, these people were not known as people of high character or great integrity. In fact, you can read some of their lives outside of what the Bible tells us. They were not good people. Let's just be honest. He could have dropped the hammer. He could have come down in a very judgmental way. I mean, for example, Agrippa and Bernice, they were husband and wife. You know what else they were? Brother and sister. Paul had dirt on all these people. He could have exposed it all, but, you know, he didn't do that. If you look closely and pay attention to what Paul says, he pre pre presents this message of Jesus in a very loving way. And I think that that should be our approach as well. Talk about Jesus in a loving way. I came to this conclusion years ago that nobody is ever hated into the loving arms of Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You don't hate people toward the cross. But you can lovingly do it. And I believe that's how Paul did it. And I believe that's how we should do it as well. Paul would also say later to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. In other words, Christ's love, this is what it's all about. It's Christ's love compels us. You start to explore how did Jesus love and what did he love. It's that love that compels us then it says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. It's the Lord loves people. Wants them to be a part of his family. And it's that love that compels. There's not an ounce of hatred in it. And then if you jump down a few verses in verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We have this incredible, we are like Christ ambassadors, armed with the message of the king. It's a loving message. It's a firm message. It's a truthful message. It's a loving message. And Christ's love compels us to bring people back to God. The old saying's true, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Let me ask this question. Did, did, uh, did Felix, did Festus, did Agrippa become Christians? Doesn't look like it. But Paul didn't seem to be discouraged. That comes to the sixth thing. We've got to remember, don't ever get discouraged. Don't ever give up. We're going to attach a word to this. We're going to call it aggressive. I'm going to encourage you, church, stay aggressive with your witness. You might be the person planting the seed. You might be the one watering it. You might be the one that's helping this person make the decision for faith. Don't ever give up. Whatever role God has for you to play, trust the Lord in this. Pray about it constantly. Be a part of that holy lineup of people that God is using. But don't ever give up. Don't be discouraged. Tom Rainer published a book a few years ago called The Unchurched Next Door, and he surveyed thousands of unchurched people. People said, I don't go to church, don't care about it. And he discovered in that survey that 82% of people who claim to be unchurched don't care anything about it, 
82% of them said that they would be somewhat likely to attend church if they were invited. That's interesting. Eight out of ten. I'll take those odds. What game are we playing? Eight out of ten. But probably more startling is the other piece of data that he received from that survey. Only 2% of people who go to church will ever invite somebody in the course of a year. Now think about that. If 8 out of 10 people said, I'd somewhat likely give church a try if I was invited, but only 2% of Christians are actually inviting anybody, there's a huge gap there, don't you think? 7 out of 10 unchurched people said that they've never been invited to church ever. Friends, inviting somebody to church, that's just one piece of the puzzle. Talking with them one-on-one, but I hope you know that if you invite a friend to church, that is a powerful tool. You have a great partner here in your family called New Life. And I hope you know that when you invite a friend to New Life Christian Church, church, they're going to hear the truth of God's Word, and they're not going to be made to feel very small at the same time. It's not going to happen. I want you to feel comfortable inviting your friends to church. I want you to feel the desire to put your friends in an environment like this where they can be exposed to what God is doing and give God an opportunity in this environment to touch their heart. You never know what God's going to do in an environment like this. Invite somebody to church. Take them out for lunch. Talk about faith. What did you learn? What do you think? Let God do his thing in all of that. Be inviters. I think the, the harvest is plentiful. I think what's lacking are people willing to step out and do anything. I want to end with this story. This, is, uh, this story comes from Pastor Rick Warren, who wrote that very famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. Many of you have read that book. He tells a story about his dad in that book, and I really do think it captures the heart of, of what we're talking about this morning, and then we'll end with that. Rick Warren says in that book, he said, My father was a minister for over 50 years, mostly serving in small, rural churches. He was a simple preacher, but he was a man with a mission. His favorite activity was taking teams of volunteers overseas to build church buildings for small congregations. In his lifetime, Dad built over 150 churches around the world. In 1999, my father died of cancer. In the final weeks of his life, the disease kept him awake in a semi-conscious state for nearly 24 hours a day. As he dreamed, he'd talk out loud about what he was dreaming. Sitting by his bedside, I learned a lot about my dad just by listening to his dreams. He relived one church-building project after another. One night near the end, while my wife, my niece, and I were by his side, Dad suddenly became very active and tried to get out of bed. Of course, he was too weak, and my wife insisted that he lay back down, but he persisted in trying to get out of bed. So my wife finally asked him, Jimmy, what are you trying to do? And he replied, gotta save one more for Jesus. Gotta save one more for Jesus. I've gotta save one more for Jesus. And he began to repeat that phrase over and over. During the next hour, he said the phrase probably a hundred times, I've got to save one more for Jesus. And as I sat by his bed with tears flowing down my cheeks, 
I bowed my head to thank God for my dad's faith. At that moment, dad reached out and placed his hand, his frail hand on my head and said, as if he was commissioning me, save one more for Jesus. Save one more for Jesus. And Rick Warren said, I intend for that to be the theme of the rest of my life. Save one more for Jesus. Paul said something very similar in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Save one more for Jesus. I hope that's how we all feel this morning. Can I pray for you? Gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for letting us have a front row seat, Lord, to what Paul went through. To his struggles, his trials, Lord, the, the things that he tried to do, those who didn't respond, those who did, Lord, we just we thank you for allowing us to share in that. Lord, our prayer this morning is that this church, New Life Christian Church, can be a beacon of hope for the world. That, Lord, we live in a community where, where, where many people don't know you. And, Lord, I pray that you raise up our church family to be those that will share their faith with whomever you put in our lives. That, Lord, we would share it passionately. We would know what we believe. We share our story. And we watch our walk at the same time. Lord, all the things involved. Well, I pray this place just become a beacon of hope for you. Lord, I pray that in the next 12 months, we will not be a statistic, but that, Lord, we will invite our friends to church. We will look for opportunity to talk about Jesus and to be that incredible aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. Lord, you're doing a good work in our church family, and we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we can live forever with you. Oh, Lord, we do want one more for you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.